Matthew McConaughey. Just saying that name brings a smile to my face. Maybe, maybe yours too. The guy is just so cool. There are a few people I've enjoyed talking with as much as Matthew since I met him the first time more than 20 years ago on a fateful celebratory football weekend in Austin, Texas. We will get to that story in a bit. The guy is so authentic, fearless, thoughtful, insightful, and man, can he tell a story because he's lived so many stories, so many peak experiences, including a solo three-week walkabout to the Amazon. I was present. I was being fair with myself. I had forgiven myself. I was seeing the beauty all around me. Everything I wanted was what I could see, and what I could see was right in front of me. It was simple. I was present. People call it Zen, whatever. I had found that. Learned some lessons there about we got to put ourselves in a position to hear the truth cross us. It's hard with all the stimuli and frequency all around us all the time. When can you when can you have you give yourself a little forced winter of quiet solitude where you may not like the company and that's good because hang in there until you do like the company because there's only one SOB we can't get rid of us. <laughs> the man is loaded with wisdom that stands the test of time and a lot of it is in his excellent book Green Lights which shot to number one on the New York Times bestseller list, is on that list for four months and counting. It's loaded with ideas, prescriptions for life, and plenty of stories, of course, including those from his film career, which began with those three famous words ad-libbed in the first ever movie scene that he shot on Dazed and Confused. All right, all right, all right. Those words just keep living on in our collective consciousness. Of course, the highlight of the acting career, the Academy Award for Best Actor, the unforgettable performance in Dallas Buyers Club. You're going to enjoy this visit with the one, the only, Matthew McConaughey. Well, Matthew, you just spent the weekend with Jennifer and myself. I was finishing reading your book. She was listening to you perform your book, which was incredibly entertaining. So she kept calling me over, listen to this part, listen to this part. So you were all around us. There were some tequila and stone crabs involved. You seem to be having a good time while you were with us. So anyway, thanks for dropping by. <laughs> I absolutely enjoyed it. Uh, uh, I, I enjoyed being read. I enjoyed being heard. <laughs> and the crab legs and tequila were great. Thank you. Well, the, the tequila, I think of you because you are a mixologist and your, your method reflects the kind of gentleman you are. And I think you can tell a lot about a man by how he mixes a cocktail for his guests. And you have always shown respect for the process, the ingredients, the manner in which it's made individually, no big picture splashing around each drink individually for the person delivered with care, served generously. And like you have in your hands, something that's really to be savored when you have a McConaughey drink. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Look, I think we, we know that sometimes when you try to do the exact same, say you're going to do one drink, but then you go, oh, I've got eight people, so why don't I just do multiply that times eight and put it in a pitcher? It's never as good as the one to one to one. Now, mind you, it's about a twelve minute make. You've been there on the receiving end. It, I'm, I'm, I'm working. I'm breaking a sweat over there, and and they're pretty good drinks. So after someone tries yours, they want one too, and then the next one wants one too. I, I'll miss out on some partying, getting making drinks for people getting ready to party. I've noticed that twelve minutes. Yeah, it's worth the wait though, and that's what I said. It's I respect that it's handcrafted. You, 
you, whenever I make a margarita, it's your method. And an equally gifted mixologist, Andre Agassi, also has very strong ideas about a margarita. So I've kind of taken the two ideas and kind of blended them. And like you said, it's never quite the same twice in a row. But um, I'm, I'm inspired by your way of making a margarita. So green lights, man. It, it is uh, extraordinary. It, it has to be experienced. I encourage people to experience it by reading it and also listening to you read it. But you call it a love letter to life. Yeah. And you call it an approach book. Not a preachy book, which I, I do appreciate. You, you, you offer ideas and, and philosophies, suggestions for other people to sort of adopt and adapt, but you don't right. do it in a heavy-handed way. And I think so many of them will connect with people as they listen to the stories and the lessons. I hope so. I mean, look, you know, self-help, advice, inspiration, it sometimes can come across preachy. I know I, I don't think anyone likes to be told what to do. I know I do not like to be told what to do at all. Um, but I've, I've, I've heard things. I've received advice through my, through my life. I've, I've been told to do certain things. I'm like, oh, that was really good. Put it into practice. It worked. But I, I, I didn't want it to come across as preachy. Um, I had some things in there that, that I shared that I feel very secure in understanding them to be truths. But then how, do, how can I share it where if, if I'm saying, hey, you should do this, Number one, people go, whoa, who do you who are you tell me what to do? And if I tell you just, hey, this is my experience. This is how I felt about it. Maybe now you don't feel like you're being told what to do. But also maybe you see a, a, a gap between, well, that's your experience. What's this for me? So if I can get into speaking with the third person, we, about the human experience, right? That's the one that's my favorite way to communicate. You have the I, the you, the we. Um, the, my least favorite is the you, because that comes across as you should do this. You should do that. And people kind of go like, wait a minute, who the hell are you to be telling me what to do? Now, what I found in the writing of the book, though, which seemed ironic at the time, was the more personal into the I I got, the more personal. I said, look, this is just my truth. This is how I experienced it. The more it became understandable for more people in the royal we, like people could go, oh, you're not telling me this is what I should do. You're telling me this is your experience. And you know what? I've had a similar experience and I'm going to use that nugget or here's how I approached that in my own way that was similar or different to yours. And that was my hope. And look, so far, you know, a lot of people are still, I've been talking about this book with different people for over nine weeks now. It's been on best on the New York Times bestsellers for 14 weeks. That's making me happy because I'm going, oh, it's translating. Oh, it's not just a personal memoir. It's actually something that people can grab for themselves and go, you know what? I see how maybe I can apply an approach here in my own life. Yeah, it'll show why you're a good educator. Your mom was an educator. My parents were educators. There's value in not saying you must, you should. Letting people come to the lessons in their own way. And that's what's going to happen in this book. I found myself nodding my head a thousand times. I found myself shaking my head quite a lot. And we'll get to some of the stories that make, will make mm -hmm. folks shake their head. Sometimes I shake my head. Hmm. I don't know about that. That hasn't been the way I've found that truth, but it's worth listening to McConaughey because maybe I'm missing something, but there's, there's going to be some head shaking and head nodding as people kind of consume this, Heard. which is, which is yes. the point. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I hope there's some head shaking to go along with the head nodding because I in no way put this book up there to go. As I say in the book, I'm not making straight A's in all these ideas. I've, I step in shit all the time and still do. And that's part of what I'm hoping to get across is, like, hey, 
we all step in shit. We, we all have a great plan that doesn't go how we wanted it to do. We all get the mic and stick our foot in our mouth at the, big, the biggest moment sometimes. And if we realize, hey, that's all part of it. That could happen. Well, I find that sometimes we end up doing it less when we take the pressure off of, hey, it's okay to fail. It's okay to screw up. And that's some of the head nodders, head, head shakers, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love that you say you don't believe in in destinations as much as directions because destinations are too finite directions give you the the wiggle room to kind of move around and and we're gonna we could start in a lot of different directions here and i i want to launch in with one of the stories that you tell in the book that involves your childhood that had me shaking my head in disbelief you're 11 years old you build a supersized treehouse by committing breaking and entering grand larceny and getting away with it which is the beautiful thing but what in the world possessed an 11-year-old kid to get up in the middle of the night, night after night? It's like using a spoon to tunnel out of Alcatraz. I'm imagining this methodical process. I'll let you say just how giant this creation was. But Matthew, man, I don't want to say an Oscar is a big deal, but you might have peaked at 11. That, that, that achievement, that legacy, this, describe this treehouse and what led you to yeah. do it. Well, I was living with my dad. As I tell in the book, I later found out it was in the middle of my mom and dad's second divorce. I thought she was just on a vacation. So we were living in a little trailer home. We had just moved to Longview, Texas. And he was trying to get his old business going. And it was he and I and this bird named Lucky, which there's a story in there I tell about. And we were living out in the middle of the woods, as most trailer parks sort of are on the outskirts of town. And so my days were full of just walking barefoot through the woods, you know, all, all, all summer day long. Well, the summer had come across us. And... I came across this about a mile from the house, across this uh, construction, I mean, not a construction, construction site, a, a lumber yard. And I saw this wood and I had always kind of built smaller tree houses it, earlier in my life with the help of my dad or friends. And I saw this wood and I waited it out and saw that all the people in the hard hats left the property at around five o'clock and it got really quiet and there were no dogs there. so. I got this idea. I was like, that's the wood I can use to make my ultimate treehouse. And there was one particular tree that I had seen that was like, this is the ultimate treehouse tree. So I said, well, this will be my project. Well, my project was to, after my dad went to bed, get out of bed, me get out of bed, go sneak over to so said lumber yard, wire cut the fence, steal the lumber, drag it to that tree's base until I had enough wood that I believed that I could start building the treehouse. Well, it was about gathering the wood for probably the first, I don't know, month and slowly stealing enough that hopefully they didn't notice that someone was taking it. And I got away with that part, it seemed. And then after I had it, now it was time. I got two more months left in the summer to build the treehouse. So I had to flip my schedule. I've been sneaking out at night to go steal the wood when no one's at the lumber yard and dad's asleep. Well, now I'm going to sleep through nights. And as soon as dad goes to work in the morning, I'm going to sneak out and start building in the day because I need daylight. And I did it every single day. I got up with him. We had breakfast. He left. As soon as he walked out the door, I saw him start his car. If he backed out and I saw his taillights go, I was out the door hauling ass to that base of that tree to start building on that treehouse. Um, and it ended up being 13 stories. Um, and I, only one. Well, I, I, I tall I could go. The tree was so tall. I, I went as tall so you, as you I built could. It to the limit. I built it to the limit and it was a, it was a, like a white ponderosa pine that stuck above all the other pine trees. And on that 13th floor, I could see Longview, Texas. 
65,000 people. And it was like a metropolis to my 11-year-old eyes, especially coming from a town of 12,000 people. And I would go to that top and I had a little a little rope with a bucket where I'd take my brown bag lunch, put it in the bottom of the bucket on the ground, climb to the 13th floor, and then pulley up my, my lunch to the top and just sit there. And I remember I'd eat so slow because I didn't want lunch to be over. And it was just me and me on the 13th floor, uh, overlooking Longview, dreaming. That is beautiful. I mean, because tree houses, and there might be fewer and fewer people old enough to remember the joys of a tree house. Maybe it's a, a vanishing art, but I, I was talking to Jennifer about it, and she had a tree house. She didn't build it herself. Her dad and her brother helped, but that was their escape. That was their place you can go. It was your own world. It was a clubhouse. She would sneak a couple cigarettes out of the bottom of her grandfather's pack, you know, vintage cigarettes or vintage cigarettes and, yeah. and Colt 45. And that's where you sort of discover that it feels pretty good to be bad. And that's what a treehouse is. Was it always just you and you or was it did anybody it was, else ever get invited to the top of the treehouse? It was me and me. I didn't really have any other friends. I was the only young boy in the whole trailer park. There were two other girls that were uh, um, uh, like 17, 18, who kind of would look after me sometimes if dad needed to go and if it was nighttime and need to be babysat. But other than that, I didn't know anybody. Um, so it was me and me and uh, me and my Daisy uh, BB gun, uh, my pair of cutoffs, my chamois that I had after I washed dry dad's car. And I made that chamois sort of feel like a native Indian tourniquet. And uh, I would head out there and it was just me and me. I was the only oh, one. And dad never saw it. I never, you know, I've been asked, have you seen it since? Do you think? And I said, no, I haven't. But I would love to see, I suppose that area of Longview's developed now. But I would love to have seen who it was that came across that property and looked up and said, what the hell? Because <laughs> it was in the middle of nowhere. Um, well, that's like tearing down the Taj Mahal. I, I know they might, the new owners might want to. But I'm what that said, though, first of all, the imagination to conceive it, the plan and plot and the, the discipline to pull that off night after night. I guess the, the construction skills to do that at your age and then trust your own skills to climb up where a, a fall would have been fatal a few times over. I mean, all yeah. that. I mean, anybody that had done that at that age, you would say, that kid is going to be some. I don't know what it's going to be, but he's, you've, you've, got the, you've got the goods. Did you see that as a crucial you know, kind of a tell about what you're going to be able to accomplish later on? No, I don't think so at the time. I mean, I, I will say this, you know, I was born in Uvalde, Texas. We moved from there when it got too big and it was 12,000 people. You know, that was my, the only world I knew. Moving to Longview, which was 65,000 people, and then having that treehouse, as I said, that 13th floor above the tree line where I could see the city of Longview, that actually, in some ways, metaphorically, taught me how to dream or allowed me to go, wow, there is a whole world out there. I see the horizon for the first time. I'm, I'm looking, I've never had this wide and long of a view. Look at that whole city. 65,000 people are in that city and I can see the outskirts of it. Wow. I got sort of a, sim, a spatial sense of the world. My spatial sense expanded. And to think that like, oh, you can travel way over there. I never could see that far. And then going and looking at a map and going, oh, and you're still in a certain county. Oh, and you're still in a certain state. You're still in the nation. You're still on the continent, but yet it's all one big backyard. So it did give me some courage, I think, to go, hey, what's over that next hill? What's on the other side of that horizon for the first time in my life at 11? You write with great power, a lot of humor about your upbringing. It was colorful, volatile, 
loving, as you describe it. It makes a lot of us who read the book go, wow, shit, my, my childhood was boring. My family life wasn't nearly as wild. I, di I didn't get my ass kicked, but I also didn't get quite hugged as much as you apparently did. I mean, it, it's just a very cinematic existence as a kid, and yet you said later on in the book that you wouldn't have traded one ass whooping that you got from your father. And I, that, that was one of those I'm shaking my head, wait a minute, now what? You, you, you feel that you, a lot of that went into who you are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I think back, and as you said, you know, my mom and dad's forms of discipline, it was physical, it was quick, it was done. You got the belt, right then, it was over, no grudges, nothing ever talked about it. I don't, we were never injured. I remember screaming at the pain of the belt, but more of the fear. What I remember when my dad backhanded me for lying to him about a pizza, I, as I write in the book, I didn't, his backhand knocked me down, but his backhand didn't knock me down. My lactic acid, coward ass leg, lion legs were paper tigers under me. And I fell down because of the guilt and shame of seeing my father's face going, why'd you lie to me, son? That, just tell me the truth. So that was the pain I remember is the pain for lying to my dad, the pain on his face of feeling like, am I being, how am I an inadequate father right now that my damn son won't just admit to me he stole the damn pizza? I gave him four chances to tell me the truth. I remember, you know, getting in trouble, getting the belt for saying I can't. I don't remember, I never, even the next day, I didn't remember the pain of the belt. I remembered the pain on my mom and dad's face of that we told you why you don't say can't. And then same with it, we told you not to lie. The, 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 belt, the butt whooping I got for saying I hate you to my brother. I don't remember the pain of the belt at the moment. I remember that, oh geez, if you hate, it brings pain. Oh, if you lie, it brings pain. Oh, if you believe you can't, you will have more pain in life. Now, look at the antonyms of those. So what did I, if those three are bringing pain, the opposite should probably bring pleasure, right? So instead of lie, tell the truth. Instead of hate and love, and instead of saying you can't or believing you can't, admit you're having trouble doing something and ask for help. That's three values they were sending me out and they were preparing me to go navigate, negotiate life with that are extremely valuable to this day and I still want to instill in my kids. Different, I want to do it in different ways than my parents did, but those, I'm still looking at that going, I'll take all those ass whoopings for those values that I learned. I'm sure everybody asks you that. Yeah, you want to do it differently. Each generation sort of a little bit different. But your dad played football for Bear Bryant, right? At Kentucky for Paul Kentucky. Bryant and then the Green Bay Packers. So like a lot of guys who viewed Coach Bryant as a father figure, I mean, that was some, that was some serious tough love with the emphasis on tough. So maybe between that and his upbringing, it sort of gets distilled down in generations and, and uh, diffused yeah. a little bit. So. I mean, that's how they, you know, that's how, that's how my dad was raised. I'm sure that's how his dad was raised. And that's why I say, I don't judge my mom and dad for how they did it. I, I think that would be arrogant of me. And I, and I'd say for a lot of, on, on, on many levels, I would say how they raised me and how they disciplined me helped me to be the man I am now. And in some ways I, I'm, I'm doing all right. Um, again, I want to go about it a different way. Uh, but I do want my children to understand there are consequences with how we look at life, how we wake up and greet the day, how we, how we deal with hardships, how we deal with crisis, how we deal with loss, how we deal with gain, how we deal with success. What's it about? Um, what, how'd you get it? Um, you know, I, I, I had this great teaching lesson with, with my children a few years ago, and it was after I won the Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club. 
And as a parent, you know, all parents know that sometimes our kids will ask us a question and we immediately go, oh, this is a great opportunity for a teaching tool. And I'm really big into delayed gratification. It's something that children don't understand, but, you know, because everything's got to be immediate. And they said, I win the trophy. And my daughter goes, what's the trophy for? And immediately, man, my mind went ding. And I said, I got I got a good chance here for, to teach her something. And I said, well, you remember the work your dad was doing a year ago? When you'd get up and I would already be gone to work and I'd come home after dark and you said I looked like a giraffe, my neck, because I was so skinny because all the weight I lost for Dallas Powers Club. They were like, yeah, yeah, we remember that. I go, well, the work your dad was doing that day, each day for that whole two months, a year later, my peers gave me a trophy for that work. And they went, what? What do you mean? You mean you can do, you can, you can do something today and be rewarded for it tomorrow? I was like, yeah. And they got the concept for the first time that we still try to instill them. Yeah, the person you are today. You're at, you're writing your book. It adds up. You, these are compounding assets for your future, for your gain or your loss. What you're doing right now matters. You're building that um, one way or the other. So, yeah, um, it's some things I still want to get across to my children for sure. You write a lot about meeting the moment and rites of passage. Those are two topics I love to talk about. The rites of passage come in different forms in the book, different stages of your life. In terms of rites of passage with your dad, for both you and your brothers, it, it involved throwing fists. I mean, in one yeah. case, your brother is getting in a fight with your dad, whacking him upside the head with a two-by-four, I guess winning the fight, but winning respect. You beat the shit out of a bouncer who had put his hands on yeah. your dad in a, in a lapse in judgment. You yeah. jump him, and after that, you went from being like kind of in his eyes, maybe the younger son, the mama's boy, to hey, hey. this guy's all right, man. And That's it all happened in 15 seconds. Yep. Or maybe that, longer, because you probably you said on the guy probably longer than that. <laughs> well, no, the fight didn't go on for, for uh, I, I, I actually blacked out. I don't remember the fight. I just remember it was one of those I saw this hand touch my dad, and to see another person put their hand on my father, I remember, <gasps> and next thing I knew, I'm getting pulled off the guy. And it's my dad pulling me off the guy. And where he, I've got him on his back 20 feet in back inside the bar. Now, I think what that was for my dad was, again, growing up in that generation that he came from, there is a certain rite of passage of physicality you need to put on, 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 on the line. It, it goes back to go back to African tribes, go off and slay a, 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 a lion or Native American tribes, you know, go off and go through great sacrifice to then come back home. It's a rite of passage. There's great value in it. Um, now, my fathers were still very corporal versions of rites of passage. But what that meant to my dad was because I was already a good talker. I was already a wordsman. I was a good debater. I was a good arguer, right? More so than my two older brothers and more so than my dad. My dad was like smart, but he was just like, look, you get it done. You do it with your hands. Get it done. By putting my own ass on the line, physically, not verbally, not making sense of the situation or giving reason to the situation or telling that bouncer why he shouldn't do this, by putting my ass physically on the line, he goes, ah, he's going to need that. That's what I need to see from him because he will need that to navigate and negotiate life, which you do sometimes. And I think that's what it was because I had never done that before. As, you, as I tell the story of being a coward earlier and wussing out when he gave me the chance after lying about the pizza. And when he got on all fours and goes, come on, I'll give you four to my one. I wasn't, I, 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 was, I was about to pee in my pants, man. But here's the thing, I look back at that situation. 
With him on his knees, if my dad said, I'll give you four to my one, if I would have swung and hit him once, he'd have got up and hugged me and said, that's my boy. I would, oh, and I, would, I would never hit you, son. I just wanted you to take the chance that you put your butt on the line. That's what it was. I mean, he could have said 16 to one and I wouldn't have. <laughs> There's a story I want to get to later on where you took the challenge and that was the point, but I, and I, I, which when I'm, that was a head shaker when I heard the story, we'll get to Africa a little bit later on. Um, you go off to uh, Australia for a year as an exchange student after getting straight A's kind of as a reward and you go down under and it's, it's beaches and surfing and barbecues and great barrier reef and, and the outback and, back alley bars in Sydney and beautiful Australian girls, or maybe it fell slightly short of that. Um, <laughs> Australia is a place of amazing wonder. You had at least for four or five months of that year, what you write about in great detail and poignance and also humor, a pretty hellish time. But you said that, man, that those four months of loneliness and alienation and deprivation and starvation and masturbation, whatever, a few other Asians in there. All the I mean, Asians. <laughs> all the Asians were like crucial, crucial to who you are now. Yeah. I, I was coming from a, talk about green lights. I was coming out of high school and I had earned most of these green lights, but I was coming out. I was rolling. Relationships were great. Grades were made. I had freedom. I had no curfew for the right, for the first time. I had a car that was paid for. I was dating the best looking girl at my school and across town. I had a four handicap. I already had, I already had three, two hole in ones, right? I'm 18. First two hole in ones are 11. I'm rolling, man. And I go to Australia thinking, oh yeah, beaches, El McPherson, this is gonna be super good. I might shrimp on the Bobby. That came, that idea came to a screeching halt because I was in a small home in the middle of nowhere, away from everyone. With the, I would think it's safe to say a different, strange sort of uh, a family that had strange, a strange idea of the relationship they would have with me. I was forced inward. I didn't have those friends. I didn't have those girlfriends. I didn't have, I did have a curfew. I didn't have my car. I didn't have mom and dad. I didn't have brothers. I didn't even have my damn golf clubs. I had nothing that, and it, it was an immediate stop. So I was forced, it was me and me and I had nowhere to go. And I picked up some very uh, awkward uh, uh, um, uh, um, sort of, what do you call them? Awkward uh, disciplines that I need to create for myself <laughs> just to feel like I had, I had accomplished something a day just to keep my sanity. Like I said, I was running six miles a day. I was a half-assed vegetarian. I, I don't was, know how you kept your sanity. Do you describe that? I mean, most of us would never have made it. You made it five months and then they weren't going to let you go after promising to let you go. And there comes a showdown where you, you lose your cool, but it has, it has great effect. And I'll, I'll, I'll let people kind of come to that story, but it's, Man, that, that, that seems like one of those turn the page, green light, rites of passage. You stood up for yourself there and, and got I, out of that situation. Yeah. Now, I write earlier, remember, I shook hands. The, the, the Rotary Club wanted me to sign a document that I would not come home early. And I was like, why would you want me to sign that? I, I didn't, I remember at 18 going, a legal document? What's that? What is it? What are you talking about? And I'm like, well, you're going to get homesick. You want to come early? And I said, no, I'm not signing anything, but I'll shake on it. And I shook on it. So, and I said, I won't come back early unless it's a family tragedy. So five months into that, when I'm, and even before five months, when I'm losing my mind, I never gave myself even the option to negotiate with myself possibly coming home. I was like, no, no, I shook on that. And it was kind of a dare. And I remember even early on after about a month and a half, when it was like, 
if you read the story, most people go, I'd have been gone even before that. I remember going like, this is pretty gnarly situation. I mean, this is pretty hairy. And I was like, and with each day, the hairier it got, the more gnarly it got, the more insane I was going. I was going like, I think I'm into something. And, and, and to, I mean, I think I'm into a really important sacrifice right here. I think the longer I endure this, there's a greater reward at the end. I don't know what the hell that is, but I think I need to go through this and let's test it. Let's test if we can make it through this. And I had never doubted that I wasn't, I had never doubted that I was going to stay the entire time. I just said, there's a lesson you're supposed to get out of this. And I think in some ways I was craving that amount of resistance, that amount of chaos to try and create order in the hard part, but also most valuable part is the only person I had to help create the order in the chaos was me. And I'd never been, I'd had, I'd had, you know, you have your parents, you have friends, you have outlets, you have things that can, that you can rely on that have your back. I had no crutches. I had nobody to have my back in that sense of you got to do it yourself. Let's see if you can hang in there. I, re- I felt early on that there was a there would be a reward if I could just out endure the situation, <laughs> which ultimately I believe that to be true. There was. Yeah. No. You you write you kind of uh, conclude the same thing like Fifty Cent concluded. You know, sunny days wouldn't be special if it wasn't for rain. Joy wouldn't feel so good if it wasn't for pain. You you say that you have to have the the shadows to appreciate the light and be thrown off balance to find your footing, and that's 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 beautifully said. And that obviously. The fact that you had the real-time self-awareness to figure out this sucks really bad right now, but maybe the worst it sucks more will get out of it. I can just stick it out. I don't think many people have much people have that sense of awareness at that moment. Well, let me let me throw an easy, even an easier one. Which to what extent this was part of my thinking, I'm really not sure, but I, I know it must have been some. Is I was also probably going. <laughs> this is going to be a great story to tell. <laughs> I, I was I was already into telling stories. I was like, and you're living this one live. I mean, look, when I said yes, when we, we're going to get to the African story wrestling in a little bit, but the re- part of the reason I know I got up to go accept that challenge was to whatever small percentage in my mind was going, this is going to be a great story to tell. <laughs> so it, there it are is. things and- I've chosen to do that would be like maybe not the wisest move, but risk I've taken where I'm like, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be one hell of a story. There are a lot of stories that are one hell of a story in this. I, I you know, those of us who I, I lost my dad when I was 16, you were a bit older than that. You were more mature and more formed at that point. But that episode of your life, the chapter where your dad is lost suddenly uh, about five days into shooting of your first movie, Days to Confuse, which launches you in this whole career is poignant and, and it's it's uh, incredible how those two events coincided he had sort of given his approval um for you to jump into this career you're going to be a lawyer he said he wanted to go to film school he gives you the validation the approval and the wisdom in that moment even though it surprised him maybe it didn't please him he had the wisdom in the moment to pause reflect and then deliver that message to you which kind of set you free as you write to do this do you ever think about what if his message had been the exact opposite to you. Do you think you'd be sitting here with a, with a film career with, a, with this same life or would you have ignored the advice or would you have hated it at that point? Well, you know, I don't know if I would be probably not. I don't know if I, I don't think I would be sitting here, but I have thought about that moment and I've thought about what he meant in that moment and what gift he gave me in that moment. 
And this makes me now contradict what I just said. No, maybe I think I would still be here because the reason, the words he told me when I said, I want to go to film school instead of law school, which I knew was going to be a big surprise to him. And the words he told me were, well, don't half-ass it. Again, that was more than approval. That was more than privilege. That was freedom, accountability, responsibility, a kick in the ass back. Go, go do it. Don't half-ass it. But I do know this. The reason, one of the reasons he said that to me is he heard, yes, I posed it to him in a question. Dad, I don't think I want to go to, I don't think I want to go to law school. Anymore. I want to go to film school. There's a pseudo question in there. But the way I said it, he knew I wouldn't really ask him permission. He, the way, the, then when he goes, are you sure that's what you want to do? I went, yes, sir. The speed with which I answered, yes, sir. The assertiveness. I didn't wait and go, well, I mean, I think. I went, yes, sir. He heard the clarity from his son, not asking him permission. Yes, doing out of respect, talking to the man who's paying for his son's education, telling him he wants to change course direction, but he knew I wasn't really asking permission. That's why he heard the resolve yeah. to go, well, then don't half-ass it. Mind you, if I'd have gone, I mean, I think I, I want to, I think he would have gone, boy, get your ass back. You ain't going to to test me to go, don't you come a bluffing. You want to make a big change? You want don't in your life? Don't come bluffing me. You know, don't, I don't, it reminded me of times of like, you know, I thought, talked to him one summer and talked him into buying me skateboard elbow pads and knee pads because I really wanted to skateboard. And he asked me over and over, you sure, son, this is a bit, it's going to cost me about 80 bucks. This is a hell of an investment. You sure you really want to do this seriously? Yes, sir, I do. Yes, sir, I do. I didn't do it. I did it for about two months and quit. I always felt like, damn it, that's I let my dad down. I talked him into investing in me in something that was nothing but a fad. Now cut to don't half-ass it. And I get to start my first uh, acting career on a film called Days Confused that he's alive for five days into. I have some peace to know that my dad was alive for me to start the one thing that would be more than a fad, that would turn into a career, that he did give me the agency to go, hey, don't half-ass it, do it well. And then actually, however, 20, however many years later, 28 years later, I've now got a career of it. That gives me some solace, too, because that was the one thing that I got to start that was not a fad. Then when you lost him, you called it your ultimate rite of passage. You were, you were so self I don't know if you were journaling at that point. When I was 16, I lost my dad after kind of an excruciating decline. It wasn't a sudden episode, so you mentally have time to prepare for it. But still, it's a shock. I didn't have a conversation with myself as apparently you did. I didn't say, Fowler, it's time to man up and grow up. But something inside me sensed this was a time to be self-sufficient. I wasn't going to lean on my mom for one thing. Never took a dime from her from that point on. Paid my way through college, worked jobs, got a scholarship, and didn't want to rely on anybody for anything, especially mm -hmm. her, to burden her. But I came across some tapes my father recorded while he was a cancer patient intending to make a, a, a book or a journal about it. I, I hadn't been heard for, they were recorded 42 years ago. I've never listened to them. Came across, it's 14 cassette sides. And in it, I learned so much about him. Um, I, I was, I'm now 10 years older than he was when he recorded them. But I just wish, Matthew, at that moment, when I was going through my stuff, I had journaled because it's interesting to hear his side of it, which is eye-opening and powerful. But I don't know, I don't remember what I was thinking at the time, what I was going through. Were you, did you keep a journal of that that you refer back to when you went off in the desert and wrote this book? I did. And I had, you know, all, all kinds of 
questions. And but I and I but I journaled through. I remember coming back after his wake and walking around the stadium on our first night, my first night back on the set of Days Confused. I was walking around the stadium with Richard Linklater and Richard and I philosophized and before and I was obviously going over, continuing to go over the meaning of life after my dad had just moved on. And it had come to me in a dream the night before, just kind of a understanding that, hey, physically he may be gone, but spiritually I can still keep my connection. I can still keep him alive, spiritually. I, and I was like, remember thinking, it's fine to talk, talk out loud, walk out. It's fine to go. If you go pick up the phone to call him, don't, and you get reminded that, oh, he's not there. It doesn't mean you can't continue the conversation. Just pick it up, say what you want to say. And it gave me sort of some freedom to say, keep the relationship going with, with him um, spiritually, even though he's physically not here. And that's where Just Keep Living came from, um, which came out of my mouth that night, actually, in a scene in that movie. And that was directly related to my dad's passing. And it was a bit of what you said. Hey, I got mom. I'm not taking anything from her. If anything, I'm in now a position to provide for her like I've never been. That's you're manning up. That's a rite of passage. I also sobered up at sort of my Peter Pan view of the world in a lot of ways. Um, I, I, I things that I, I that I revered, mortal things that I revered, fame, success, money, people. I held respect for them, but they came down to eye level, and I felt like, no, you go look those things in the eye now, be involved with them. Don't be such an awe of them. Things that I was looking down upon, condescending, patronizing. Oh, that's not good enough for me. Rose up to eye level. And I remember writing, the world is flat. I didn't mean it literally, but I was like, I'm seeing the world is flat. I see further. I see wider. I see more clearly. I'm walking with my heart higher and my chin higher because it's on me now. There's a great piece of self-reliance that comes when you lose a father, you know, and you started to explain it for you as well. And so I, it was a time to, man up. And I was keeping a journal of that stuff and how I was thinking, questions I had through that time. And that was some of them. You write in the book that, that travel and humanity have been my greatest educators. Yeah. Man, that line, that line connected with me and, and walkabouts and the role that they, they play. And I remember seeing the film walkabout when I was a kid, my family watched it. That struck with me, the Aboriginal guy who goes off and, you know, that, that term drives from there. But walkabouts can happen anywhere in the world. And if you can find a way to you know, cut away the static and the stimuli and let the inner voice be heard and confront yourself as you write if you need to. If that's part of it, confront yourself. And the impetus for these walkabouts have come from wet dreams, which is interesting. Again, you was write that, with was rich that a head detail. Shaker or Pardon me? Was that a head shaker or a nodder? <laughs> my, my last one of those was a long ass time ago. So it was a head shaker, man. But, but listen, it's a, it's a, the fact that you had... The identical, and I don't know how you knew it was an 11-second dream, but an identical 11-second dream years apart, and it led you to first go to Peru and a quest eventually for Machu Picchu, which is a miraculous place, and float down the Amazon and, and have a spiritual awakening, and later Africa. In Peru, I wondered if, if that was ayahuasca-aided or perfectly natural, because that, that, that is a, the, the way that you describe kind of whatever you were, day five or six in the Amazon jungle, and then sort of... Boom, something came to you that was life-changing. It was about day 12, actually. And no, that was, um, that was, there was nothing outside of my body. If anything, it was a purge of getting everything out. And there was no, there was no ayahuasca, no peyote involved in it. It was me and me um, 12 days into a trip that was a solo journey of my own. And 
a trip that the first 12 days I was not enjoying my company. I was not able to be present. I didn't like where my mind was going. I was feeling guilt. I was feeling shame. I was feeling like sins of action, sins of the mind. Uh, I, I, I didn't know where I was going in life or, 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 or what my track was. Um, my mind was in, in, in a low place. And again, I felt like that was okay. Endure this, endure this. And I put myself in a place so far out that I didn't have, like the Australian ship, I didn't have the parachute to pull. I was out there and I was like, no, you're going you're, you're gonna to sweat this out and you're going to go through this in about day 12. And this has happened to me multiple times, about day 12. I wake up and I have a purge. I've, I've, I've thrown up. I've gotten rid of every talisman that, that defined me. I wake up and I go for this walk and I'm feeling present for the first time. And all of a sudden I'm seeing the light and I'm forgiving myself for certain things. I should forgive myself. I've, I've shaken hands with myself about things. Hey, buck stops here on that. We're not going to keep doing that one. We're changing. We're going to evolve as a, as a young man. And I came across that story, that, that, that whole huge blue, neon blue floor on the jungle floor, which when it moved, turned out to be tens of thousands of butterflies. And that's when I first found the Amazon. That's when I went for that swim in the Amazon to go put myself in the place that I that was actually in that 11 second dream I had, which I had now had for the second time, which is what got me to Peru. Um, and the rest of that trip, the next say they're 22 days, the next 10 days were glorious. I was present. I was being fair with myself. I had forgiven myself. I was seeing the beauty all around me. Everything I wanted was what I could see and what I could see was right in front of me. It was simple. I was present. People call it Zen, whatever. I had found that. Learned some lessons there about we got to put ourselves in a position to hear the truth cross us. It's hard with all the stimuli and frequency all around us all the time. When can you, when can you have you give yourself a little forced winter of quiet solitude where you may not like the company and that's good because hang in there until you do like the company because there's only one SOB we can't get rid of. Us. <laughs> there's only, you're the only person we can't, we, you know, there's only one person that we're like, well, I'm, I'm stuck with you no matter what. And so that's what that, that's happened on that trip. And then it happened again. Three years later, when I had the exact same dream again, and went off to Africa. Yeah, and cut to the chase there. You, you're in Mali, and it's it's beautifully told story in the book. I'd encourage that the, there's there's chapters, stories in this book that are alone worth ten times the price of the book. But the Africa experience spoke to me. It's a place I connect with. Been lucky enough to be there many times in many different situations, but never one as you describe, where you you make this long arduous journey to a village, you fall down exhausted, and then you get nudged by the champion wrestler of the village and challenged to a wrestling match in your exhaust state. It's a pretty imposing looking dude. And you meet the challenge, man. I mean, I don't know how many people get up off the ground and meet that challenge, but you did. Well, I remember the two voices as I'm laying there and the crowd starts, the villagers start to whoop it up because the champion wrestler of the village just stood over me and pointed to me, pointed to his heart, and then pointed over there to the right. And I look to the right, and there's a big dirt pit. I go, my heart rate starts going. And as I'm hearing in this here, going, no way, dude. Don't even. You're way out of. As I'm already starting to get up because in this here, I'm hearing, dude, are you kidding me? If you don't, you'll never. You you you'll regret it. You don't know what story this could be. Again, you may have a great story to tell. So I get up, 
point to my chest, point to his, and head towards the dirt pit. And hey, now it's on. The night's entertainment. And you may have a story to tell. You also might be in traction, a four-day walk from a, from a hospital, too. I mean, it never occurs to you that the, the what-ifs? I mean, <laughs> I, look, I trust it. And here's the thing. I remember going, I don't know the rules. Is there biting, gouging, arm breaking, hitting? I don't know. It seems to be there's no weapons. That's good. Um, and and I'm somewhat confident in my own wrestling ability. I got two older brothers I had to defend myself from. I'm thinking, and I'm in good shape. I'm coming off a rain and fire. I've been playing a dragon slayer. I'm, I'm, I'm in good physical shape. This guy's in great physical shape. I'm playing on his turf by his rules, and I'm going to trust this situation. And it was just wrestling, thankfully, of which <laughs> I did all right. And... Um, you know, I remember the, the great denouement of that story is we go two great rounds, which seemed like it lasted 20 minutes, but probably lasted five. And the chief raises both our hands and the crowd's going crazy. And as soon as he lowers our hands, the guy's name, wrestler's guy's name was Michelle. He looks at me, slight bow and runs away. Where'd he go? As he goes running away, I'm looking, I'm going, why'd he run away? The crowd envelops me and starts chanting my name. Well, the next day, I go to leave the village to walk out of the village. The whole villagers are following me, chanting my name. I get to the edge of the village. They go back. Guess who's waiting for me at the edge of the village? Michelle, the guy I wrestled last night, who ran away. He doesn't say a word. As I approach the path to walk by, he slightly bows, turns 180, grabs my hand, walks me holding my hand 14 miles to the next village without saying a word. We get to that village. It's now nighttime. Without saying a word, as I get to the village's uh, boundary, he lets go of my hand. I'm in a slight bow, turns around and walks home. Now I go back to the same village unannounced six years later. Michelle's got five kids. He doesn't want to wrestle again. He broke his hip. <laughs> but the next day, I have to walk 14 miles to the, to the same village I did six years prior. Guess who's waiting for me at the edge of the village to hold my hand and walk me that 14 miles again? Michelle. You. Yeah, that is. Oh. Yeah, that 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 is powerful. It, it will give you chills, these stories. Uh, there, there's another beautiful story, but involved a, an intellectual wrestling match, not a physical wrestling match. And you learn something, I think, that is so valuable and, and so applicable to where we are right now. You, you entered into an argument, which... Two guys were arguing about what was right or wrong. Um, the details you can describe or not, but the, the gist of it is you, you put yourself in there. You declared, I'm on this side. This is right. That's wrong. And they immediately cut you off and said it's not about right or wrong. It's about understanding. And that is so powerful right now. We're, we're so about being right and so about pointing fingers across at the other side who are wrong. And there's no room and energy for, under, for understanding. And they yeah. said, and you, you apologized, and they said four words that express with economy, but great power. You could write volumes about this. Be different, not sorry. Yep. It's be be beautiful. It's, it's, it's one of the things I love about Africa. They speak in these very succinct proverbs that have consequences. I mean, they're like, you know, do not adult, or the same will happen to you. In your own bed. You're like, they put, a, they put one on the end that makes it even worse. You know what I mean? And so this argument, I side with the guy. With the, guy with the guy I side with is the one that barks back to me. Is It's not about the right or wrong. Is do you understand? Whoa. 
And I'm like going, I was agreeing with you. And he, you just told me it's not about right or wrong. Do you understand? And then I look over and the other guy goes, do you understand that? And I was like, yes, I apologize. And then just as quick and lethal. You better be different, not sorry. Whoa. You better be different, not sorry. So that reminds me of things like, yeah, man, I mean, how many times, you know, we, we all do it. I, I do it too. But people are like, oh, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry. It's almost like, oh, come on, man. How many times are you going to be a repeat offender? <laughs> how many times are you going to say, hey, I'm sorry about that? No, are you really trying hard enough? I have a talk with my kids all the time about, look, if you keep doing the same thing over and going, I'm sorry, I'm kind of starting to feel like you're not respecting what I'm saying the first time because it wasn't any harder for you to do wrong again. It should be yeah. harder if you're sorry. And it was a very, it was, it was an African proverb that he preached to me that is a really good one. You better be different, not sorry. It's okay to have differences. You brought up where we are today about right and wrong. Man, we all want to be right. I'm guilty of that. I want to be right. Well, hang on a second. There's the truth, but there's, there's more than one way to be right most of the time. Um, and it's okay to say, hey, no, someone's just different. They don't need to apologize for that. Unless they're a tyrant, unless it's harming someone else, I think we have to allow that celebrate our differences in that way. You've had so many, so many moments which you describe about epiphany and turning the page. And, you know, the, the fact that you just came up with an ad lib speech and uh, uh, you said a lot about, but just keep living. But, but that ad lib speech in a scene which, which you weren't supposed to have any lines becomes uh, this, this mantra for people. And, and, and you kind of, stumble upon a way of saying what many great philosophers have spent their life studying and thinking about to conclude. Yeah, Alan Watts said the meaning of life is just to be alive. Right. People rush around in a panic as, as if it's essential to achieve something other than being themselves. No, just being alive is the point of it. And, and you, you arrived at that you know, sort of very early. And, and being authentic and being true to yourself is something you keep circling back to. You keep getting in trouble and making mistakes and getting off course when you're not yourself, you're not authentic, which people yeah. forget. And I've had to calibrate and recalibrate many times, and I'm sure I'm going to have to continue to calibrate and recalibrate going forward. Hopefully there's some evolution and I'm not doing the, the same recalibrations I've done in the past, but I, 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 I sure as heck know that and believe that, you know, to go back to what you said earlier about, you know, the destination and there's really, there's really no destination. I do, I do believe that. I think, you know, life that we're living is a verb. Um, we never really arrive. Every time we think we go, oh, I got it. I'm in the honey hole. I, I've got it. my relationships. Everything's just so symbiotic now. Everything's just rolling for me. Oh, get ready. Something, something will change. Or maybe we're ambitious enough where we go, I need to create a new resistance because I want to evolve a little bit more. Um, and I think that's it. Chasing yet is really a, a thought that I've been trying to deconstruct here for the last year, which is personally and collectively. Chasing yet our better selves, our more transcendent selves individually. We just keep chasing that. We never get there. That's the point. Uh, collectively, is America ever going to find perfect justice? No. But if we keep chasing it and keep trying to get there, that's the point. That's as good as it gets. And I think if we get in our mind that, oh, we don't ever arrive. It's always chasing yet. And if there can be a slight escalation in our evolution as individuals and, and person kind, 
that's as good as it gets. But just stay in the race and commit to the chase, knowing that you don't arrive and go, ta-da, we did it. There is no utopia out there. There's no place where we go, I'm now my most transcendent self. No, we're only tapping into the 11th percent. We got 89% to go. I like to talk about the old Icarus thing. You know, the old Icarus flying too close to the sun, the wax melts. Well, I'd say most, more often than not, we put proverbial roofs on our own potential where we think it's hot and hell, it ain't, it's still 45 degrees outside. It ain't even close to hot. That wax ain't melting. You got a long way to go. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's, 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 um, that's some of my thoughts on it, but I, I, and that's where the just keep living. That's why I say life's a verb. That's why I took the G off of, of, of living. Hey, it's a verb. It's, it's, it's for living. You know what I mean? A lot of the books about clarity, receiving it, putting yourself in a position to be able to receive the clarity, however that is, whether it's meditation. For me, it's being in nature, which is my church, but many people use prayer. You've used road trips, some, some outstanding stories about crazy road trips in various stages of your life. But, but once you're in a place then, Matthew, then you know, sort of being self-aware, and that's sort of a, a lost art these days, self-aware enough to receive it. You write conscious enough to recognize it, and it usually lands like a butterfly, mm -hmm. quick and quiet. So it's not some sledgehammer in your head. It's a, it's a soft landing. And then when it's there, it needs no introduction. And you talk about the presence, the patience, and then the courage to finally live it once you sort of figure it out. I mean, that's a lot for people, but there's so many people sort of taking stock right now in their lives and trying to figure out whether a change of direction is in due. And then they're searching for clarity, even, I think, more than ever. Yeah. Um, you know, those... The order that I put those in, it, it is chronological on, on, on purpose. I mean, and the hardest part is the courage to live it. I mean, you go in nature, you get clarity, you come back, you're traveling the road, you're in the booth. All of a sudden you hadn't been able to get out in nature in a while. It starts to get stripped away. That courage to go, no, that truth that crossed me will work whether I'm in solitude or amongst the trillions of the masses in the loudest theater and, 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 and stadium in the world. Hang on to that. Trust that that can be true. Having clarity of that is, is, is a big step because, man, it's hard to find things that are clear for us. No, I can trust that. I believe that. I think, we, I think the truth's all around us all the time. Do we put ourselves in a position to hear it? And then again, when we hear it, presence to personalize it. Then, get, then be conscious with it, have patience to preserve it because we think when we cross this, we go, oh, that's so clear. I'll never forget that. Uh, yes, you will. <laughs> we all will. We all forget it. And we look back and we go, how did I lose that? So you got to have that, that preserve it, that patience to preserve it. Keep going over it. That's habits. That's reading it every day. If you cross one, write it down. Just have a look at it every day. Remind yourself. Then the doozy. Can I take it outside the door? Can I take it when I get out of bed in the morning? and practice it with my children, my family, strangers. And if you do that enough, we can form a habit out of it. And when we form a habit out of it, then we're singing. Then we're singing, because we, when we get off frequency, we get in a rut again, we can look back and go, oh, I bet I see, I changed that habit that I had that was working for me. I, but now I, I, I've written it down so I can go back and I can have a look and recalibrate, get back on. And on. you use a great phrase, take it into the screaming arena 
of our daily lives. I mean, people know what that means. Even if it's not literally that, you nod your head, you go, yeah, that's going to be the challenge to take that lesson and then apply it every day. You, you write about preparation. I don't have colorful dreams. I, I, I'm envious that I, you remember your dreams. I, I don't. But I do have one recurring nightmare, which is not being prepared, not being ready for uh-huh. something. And, and, and you, you, have, you tell stories about the, the consequence of negligence but not preparing properly. But, but just people think, I'm a kind of, hey, he's so gifted, he's instinctive. He probably shows up and wings it. Nothing goes into it. You, you dispel that. Lawrence Levy had talked about having the humility to prepare, to have the confidence to perform. And, and I try to preach that all the time. It's, it's, preparation is everything. It's the confidence, but it's what it's the grind behind the scenes that nobody sees, and it's not glamorous. No, it's not glamorous. It's where I, it's where it's where the work is. It's doing the work so I can show up on set and play. It's it's you preparing for the match so you can get in the booth, and you McEnroe can be there and call the match as it unfolds in front of you in the mysterious way that you did not know it was going to. It's it's it's. Then you're present. If you're prepared, now you can be present. If you're not prepared, and you you know, we see it all the time. You're anticipating, oh, I've got all these things I want to say. I hope, the, I hope the game I'm calling allows me a chance to say this thing. And if you're anticipating, looking for it, you miss a great play. You know what I mean? Because you're thinking, oh, i got to find a place to get this in. Well, preparation gives you that freedom to play. I always say that, I mean, I, and look, I'm, there's a great story in there about how I embarrassed myself from lack of preparation. Um, and did not prepare for a scene on purpose, thinking my bright idea was that I am nothing but an instinctual, instinctual actor. I don't need to study the lines. <laughs> my career started in Days Confused, and I just improv all that shit, man. Here, let's do it again. Eh, not when you got a four-page monologue in Spanish put in front of you that you didn't <laughs> know was going to be there. Oh, geez, oh, man. I remember the bead of sweat going on the back of my neck going, oh, my God. You said you took a 12-minute walk and prep. Did you really come back and know that shit in 12 minutes in Spanish? Hell no. <laughs> you don't no. put that part in there. I mean, 12 minutes. I remember I seen 12 minutes. Can I get 12 minutes? My mind thinking, oh, that's enough time not to be inconsiderate uh, to the crew who's ready to go. But maybe it's also enough time to learn a four-page monologue in Spanish because, hey, I took Spanish for a semester in the 11th grade. Well, look, the, the, it was not true. No, I came back and I don't know what kind of Spanish hacked up Spanglish crap I did, but I did something and it embarrassed the hell out of me. And I said, I never want to feel that again. And from that day on, I learned that value of preparation. And now I try to come in, you know, even in preparation, if I get like, I got it, I got it, I got it. I'm like, well, man, maybe you need to look at it even more different way because I don't want, I want to go into, I don't know about you, but I want to go to the set every day, having the right kind of butterflies Hmm. going all right, man, I'm, 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 I'm catching my breath here. This is good. I don't want to feel like, dude, whatever, I got it. I got now, it. The, the, you're on alert if you don't feel the butterflies, if you don't feel the, some kind of nervous energy. That's when I get, wait a second, you better find a way yeah. to get those butterflies. Talk yourself yeah. into it, you know? Yeah. So you, so that's, that, that's that version when I say come into a scene unbalanced. I, I'm so prepared. I feel like I can come in and I got a steady stance. Well, now that I got a steady stance, well, maybe I need to stand on one leg and see if I can find my balance to keep me sharp. Um, but yeah, preparation is, I mean, and it's consistent. I mean, this isn't novel. It's consistent. All, everyone that does something really well usually is like, I, well, I prepared for it. We've got, you know, quarterback coming up here in, in Super Bowl is like, yeah, out prepares people. 
other quarterbacks did the same thing. Great players prepare so you can go there. And it's instinctual. If you prepare enough, it's instinctual. You don't want to be thinking about it on the day. You know, you see players, a new, a new, a new, a new DC comes into a, 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 a football program and he's got a complicated scheme in the back. Pretty good chance that's going to be a crappy defense that first year because his defensive players are thinking about where they're supposed to be. So they're a half a step slow. Now, the next year, if they've had long enough time to prepare, where they're not having to think about stuff on the field or the proverbial, then they may be pretty good because they're using their instincts. So if you prepare enough, you're not in the game thinking about it. You're reacting and calling audibles live while the clock's running, while you're in the game, on the, on the, on the 26th ball in the rally. You know the context of the player on the other side, where they're getting fatigued, where you're getting fatigued, things like that. Then you're in the moment playing it, and it's all instincts. I can see why one of the professions you tinkered with or at least contemplated while you're on your 20-month hiatus from Hollywood was football coach. You've been a damn good football coach. You brought it there. You've been generous. We've had the news and the weather. I will leave it with the sports here. And we know each other basically through Texas football. Um, first met. At a, at a Longhorn game, game day was there. There's one memorable game where Texas beats Nebraska. It's a top five showdown. It's a it's a massive party in Austin. Uh, we got done with our work. We were invited to join you at a, a saloon of your choosing in downtown Austin to begin the post game celebration, which we did. But then they said, "You don't have to go home, but you got to get out of here." You you graciously invited us to continue the party along with others at your house. We saw a yellow light. And which the yellow light was responsibility and an early flight. And I don't know, I'm not a man of regrets, but damn. I mean, had we seen a green light there, that was the infamous beginning of the 32 and a half hour bender that ended with the story that all of America knows, man. <laughs> yes. So it wasn't that night that I decided to uh, get neck and play congas in my birthday suit. It even wasn't the next night. It was... <laughs> 2.36 a.m. the Monday morning, and I had not gone down yet. I was still celebrating our great victory when I decided to make some music with myself and wind on down, figured it was time to lay it on down and get some sleep. But before so, let me have a good jam session. Well, I had left a window open. A neighbor heard it, called the cops. They came in. I resisted pretty heavily. And yes, that was... Uh, I- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, we would def, definitely not have hung around to the next night, the next night, the next morning. But I mean, I was like, part of me wanted to say, damn, I was there at the be- at least at the beginning <laughs> when those cops eventually kicked your door down. The takeaway from that is you didn't really do anything wrong. You were just treated wrong. And, and I love the fact that you use that as a turn the page moment. You'll learn some things from it. I think you ended up actually leaving that house in that in, in Austin at that point. Only to return later, but it was a, the takeaway was pretty interesting. It's one of those, as you described, the turn the page moments out of a kind of an infamous story. Yeah. Well, you know, I remember the the big decision the next morning when I was feeling I was I was I was coming out of the jail cell and I was feeling the blues. I had the blues. It had been on a long run. I was tired. Plus, I was like, "What are you doing? Being put in a, in, in jail for a night?" And I remember going in my mind, do you regret what you did? And I went over and I was like, no, I've done that before. I mean, I'm going to do that again. But I did regret getting caught. And then I was in jail. And I was like, all I know is I'm a man who's been raised to never end up here. So whatever, 
not talking about right or wrong. It is not about right or wrong. It is, do you understand? <laughs> this is not where you're supposed to be. And I don't like that. So either figure out how to get away with it better or shut the damn window next time. So I remember saying, you can go to the right. We have a car waiting for you under a covered park. You can get out completely in private. Or you can go to the left. There's a whole lot of press out there. And an easy choice would have been taking the right. And I leaned to the right and I said, no bullshit. And took a left and went out to the press and kind of, they 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 were already in on the joke that it was funny before I could open my mouth of what I got arrested for. Another triumph at Texas victory. You get a chance to watch your alma mater win a national championship and maybe the most dramatic, cinematic college football game of all time at the Rose Bowl, beating USC in the showdown that had more star power than any game I've ever seen in my 30-plus years. You get to watch that and then host – a victory party at your home in the hills where some of the players that dude that's that's a that's a life pinnacle experience from Longhorn football. So I mean, not many fans get get that that specific kind of an experience. So. Yeah, no, you know I'd gotten to know that team pretty well over that year, and and Mac had always invited me in in, in a really cool way, and. I was there, you know, the the day before uh, with team pictures and got to talk to each player and, and stuff. And so I'd gotten to know them kind of well and, and, and got came close with Mac. I was on the journey the un, of the undefeated season with them. And um, it was it was beautiful. I remember from the first hit on the first on the first kickoff, I was like, oh, 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 there, there's some hitting going on tonight. And what was beautiful about that game? There's so many beautiful things, but it doesn't have one of those moments where you go, oh, the ref made a bad call. That could have turned things around. Or, oh, there was no controversy. The biggest controversy that game had was, why did Pete Carroll run Lindell White? Which isn't really a big controversy, but it just gave a bit of a narrative to say, oh. Yeah, Reggie Bush won. wasn't in the game for one of the key plays, and they were trying to kill the clock, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, that was the biggest controversy. Which was kind of bait. That's like D-level controversy. Yeah. Um, anyway, and it was just played awesomely by both teams. I mean, mind you, we, our team really enjoyed, and me as a fan enjoyed we were never given a chance in the narrative. Um, the narrative was, hey, boy, we're, you know, go, we, they may go play them tough, but this dynasty of USC will never be. It's the best team ever. They'll never be beat. And our team kind of relished in that, especially our quarterback. Loved it. He absolutely loved it. Vince Young came running down to our set in triumph and defiance, yelling because Reggie Bush had won the Heisman that year. Who the Heisman? Who the Heisman now? Who the Heisman? Yeah, Vince, it's your night. Congratulations, man. <laughs> you're, you're, you're the king tonight. There's no doubt about that. You, you got the precious trophy. It, it, was, it was just one of those moments that you don't ever forget. And, and to be a fan of the team and be able to celebrate it that way is pretty cool. Uh, the Steve Sarkeesian era begins at Texas. He, by the way, was on USC's staff in the game we just talked yeah. about. Now he, he takes over. You know, Sark is as gifted as anyone at specific things like designing plays and calling them in real time. There's so much more that goes into being the head coach at Texas. That's the kind of let's wait and see about that because it's uniquely or almost uniquely political, that job. You have to navigate, unless you're winning huge, as you know, you have to navigate the politics. I wish him well with that. I, I know as an alum, as a fan, a, a faculty member, uh, you yeah. have high hopes for that. Uh, I, I do. And I got to, you know, I called him the other day and we got to catch up for about 45 minutes and, 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 and meet each other and talk about where he is, where the, where, where we're going, the team's going, et cetera. I got to say, I was really impressed with his, uh, his humble confidence. And, um, you know, he's got his own resurrection story. It, will that be parlayed into a resurrection story of the University of Texas football? There could be a fun narrative there. 
um, a tasty one. Um, you know, one of the things we were talking about, and I think for our program, and you talked about the unique way, it's, it's a unique sort of uh, uh, pressure there. And some of that does have to do with the politics, but all the eyes on the brand. Um, you know, if you're, when you're, when you're 11 other teams, number one rival. And the second most is what, Notre Dame with four? I mean, you're, you've got the target on your back. Well, you could either hear that and go, <gasps> clinch up, or you can go, I, we, I end, we are the underdog. We are. It's that overdog, underdog. We are the, being the overdog. We should see, I believe, the mentality should be we are an underdog because we are in that unique position and like nobody else. Um, so that's a mentality that I, that I look forward and hopefully we can we can we can get um, and, and build. But I'm excited about it. You know, I, I talked to Steve. I said I'm not. You know, I was I was I became friends with Tom Herman, and I've never been. And I was friends with Charlie. And I was friends with Charlie Strong, and then Mac. Um, people come to me and always think that I'm like, so you part of the, you, you throw your, your opinion in the hat on the hiring and firing. I'm like, no, I am here to do what I can to be most useful, to help whatever coach we have here succeed. That's, that's, that's what I'm doing. That's the fan I am. That's the, me as the minister of culture. I don't want to get in that politics you're talking about. I don't want to get in that. You guys do that, man. I want to do what I can to help this team win and succeed and, uh, for the university of Texas. Well, you're as wise in that arena as you are in all the other ones. Yeah, stay out of that. Very last thing, because you write in the book with great detail and great humor about enjoying placing a wager on an occasional football game, including a story with your brother Pat in Vegas when the Bills played the Cowboys and you, know, you took the 10 and a half and you got crushed for $6,000, losing every single props bet you made, which is very hard to do. It's very hard to lose every single props bet. But we got the Super Bowl coming up. This will be listened to after the game is played, but recorded before. So people will either okay. say McConaughey knew it or he's an idiot. Okay. So yeah. what do, are you feeling something? Do you know something about Super Bowl 55? With, with I the, do the, not Tom Brady is getting three points. Something, but here's, here's what the, the beautiful narrative right now that we, that, that we have going in front of us. Talk about a roof is a handmade thing that we were talking about earlier, talk about, you know, when do you think your wax is starting to melt? Oh, you got a long way to go? Tom Brady is the epitome of that right now as a human walking the earth, playing quarterback at 43 for Tampa Bay. Can he fulfill this narrative to go, oh my gosh, I mean, what you did was already incredible if you'd retired last year. Wait, you got Tampa Bay to the playoffs? Oh, geez, you can't believe that. Wait, New England didn't make the playoffs without you? Oh, I don't know, whatever math that is. Oh, you won the you won the NFC Championship? Dude, this is already overachievement. Stop. You got to the Super Bowl? What? This is it. Can he go one more? My hunch right now is that he can and will. Um, and that would be the most beautiful narrative for talk about uh, um, inspiration. Talk about self, about going, hey, we, we, we have more in us than we, than we allow, give ourselves credit for. Um, boy, is, is this a pick with the heart, not the head? As right now, I am. How do, I don't know how you stop Kansas City Mahomes from scoring. Yeah, I, I don't the, know. The, the, on the I other side. Plays defense is really good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this um, so I'm gonna, right now, I'm going, with, I'm going with the hero's journey. 
Yeah, because it, it's funny. Brady's obviously polarizing. There are a lot of younger listeners and, and viewers who say, wait a minute. Dude's won, like, what, six? Mahomes, man. Mahomes is the young gun. He's the man of the moment. He's got a great charisma. He's got a great natural leadership ability. His age is good. It's, yeah. it's like you would script it, right? It's like you would script this kind of a matchup. And we'll, I hope you got a game worthy of it, right? I do too. You know, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful matchup. Um, I did not ever think Tampa Bay was going to get this far. Obviously, Kansas City looked like they were going to get there, you know, since last year's Super Bowl win. But but let's see. So yeah, that's my heart pick. I do not know anything yet. And <laughs> if I uh, if I call with a five buck wager on you, I could I could flip the script by then. But we'll see. By the time you're hearing the show, you're either going, yeah, McConaughey, good idea, or you're going McConaughey. That's what happens when you bet with your heart. Well, you write in the book. Cool stands the test of time, and you are nothing if not that. So I, I think you're, you're going to live forever with this book now as well as your characters. And I, I hope you do more writing because your voice is, is, is pretty singular, unique, and it's, it's got a lot to say, and, and you say it beautifully. So whether it's uh, more books or screenplays or something else, I hope that this creative outlet continues to be fruitful for you because uh, there, there's a lot more to tell and a, a lot more to learn from what, what you have experienced, man. Well, thank you for saying that, Fowler. I, I, I hope so. I really enjoyed writing and sharing, uh, sharing through writing a book. And it's just been immensely happy for me to hear, to talk to people about the same subject maybe over and over, a hundred times, but every time it's original in particular because it's with a different person and how they either applied it to their life or saw something similar in their own being. So that's been what's happiest for me. And that's why I'll hopefully never get tired of talking about it as long as someone does want to. Salute. No one can see, but I, I'm, I'm raising a glass to you. We got, actually got the, we got the really good stuff here. So this is a. <laughs> ah, okay. I'm not there yet. Um, where I am, I'm in, yeah. I'm in an earlier time zone. So yeah. look at me. <laughs> it, it's got exactly, it's, it's past five o'clock where I am, Matthew. Cheers. Salute, man. I enjoyed it. Really grateful for you. Always good to see you, Chris. Man, that was a lot of fun. Grateful to Matthew. And if you enjoy the podcast conversation, you'll also enjoy Green Lights. Encourage you to experience his book, loaded with stories and lots of ideas for living. By the way, we can now say that Matthew's Super Bowl pick with the heart was spot on. The storyteller in him wanted to believe that Tom Brady would add one more chapter to his legacy. And of course, he did exactly that. Sometimes the picks with the heart are the best kind of picks. I just hope that Matthew played his hunch. Also, as always, very grateful to the co-executive producer of this podcast, Jennifer Dempster, who's also my wife and partner. We work hand in hand on all facets of these episodes. So very grateful for her. Also to our producer, Jason Weichelt in Los Angeles. Encourage you to subscribe, like, and review the podcast. And as Matthew would say, just keep living and just keep listening. I'll talk to you soon.